The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I want to speak um, today to you on Martin Luther. I noticed there is a picture of Luther. Those of you who are not sure what he looked like, uh, he looked something like the person in the middle of that uh, sort of relief over there, which is described as reformers of the 16th century, though at least one of the figures died, as far as I know, in the 1390s. So it's not exactly reformers of the 16th century. Why do I want to speak on Luther? Why do I consider Luther significant? Primarily, I think, I could sum it up in in a single sentence. I think Martin Luther had a more profound insight into the importance of the cross for Christian life and theology probably than any theologian before or since. Those of you who know anything about Luther will know that uh, he was a, a controversial figure. Some of his views one would regard as thoroughly obnoxious today. But on the issue of the cross... Uh, Luther had a tremendous and profound insight and that shaped his understanding of preaching and shaped his understanding of the task of the preacher. So all I want to do today is just introduce you to a few themes from Luther's thought with a view to encouraging yourselves to go off and read Luther, meditate on Luther, learn from both his strengths and his weaknesses. I provided you with three handouts. If anybody is missing any one of the three, I think what we, some more are being done for us. If there's still anybody missing them after uh, these, I will leave a set at the desk in the library. I have to rush off at the end of this class, unfortunately. I'll leave a set at the desk in the library so you can go and ask the librarian for a copy if you wish uh, to have one to take home with you. Uh, the, the handouts, are, I've given three handouts. One is a bibliography, a list of brief books, brief list of books. The books themselves are not brief, I'm afraid, in some cases. But a brief list of books uh, to look at to uh, enable you to get a handle on Luther. Some good quotations uh, from Luther on preaching and the task of the preacher. And then a sample sermon that I thought we might briefly look at towards the end of the class. Has everybody got a copy of the... Luther Bibliography. Anybody missing a copy of the Luther Bibliography? If you could send those up in this sort of direction. I'll just run very quickly through this. Uh, Those of you who can read either Latin or German or both, the best thing to do is to go to the Weimar edition of Luther's works. We hold them in the library. For those of you who don't or don't wish to be bothered... um, We also have what's called the Philadelphia edition, which is a very nice 55-volume edition of Luther's writings. It's the best and most comprehensive uh, set available in English. If you're hard-pressed financially, if you want a single volume of Luther's writings, it gives you a good spread of the kind of thing the guy said, kinds of things he thought. Then the two uh, selections that I mentioned for you on this handout from Dillenberger and Lull, 
are well worth looking at. And I think we have Dylan Berger in the bookshop. So you can get Dylan Berger. If you're really uh, on fire for Luther, you can get Dylan Berger later today if you go over to our own bookshop. Um, the sermons are available in a seven-volume set from Baker. Uh, the good news is an awful lot of Luther is in the public domain. It is out on the internet. What I've given you today, I downloaded from the internet yesterday from public domain sites where there's no copyright problems or anything. Uh, the best place to start is the web page I've given you there, it's something called Project Wittenberg, which is gathering together an awful lot of texts, both by Luther and by other Lutherans, and you can access them from the one web page, and it takes you to other web pages that do similar things. And I think uh, going from that page, you can get to a page that has all of those seven volumes of sermons in electronic format. So uh, there's no need to buy them from Baker, you can get them free off the internet. So the stacks of Luther out there on the internet. Those of you interested in learning something about his life, uh, probably the best introduction is a book I didn't list on the uh, handout, and that's by Roland Bainton. It's a small book called Here I Stand, which has pictures in it as well. So it's kind of more fun than any, anything else I happen to have recommended on the handout. But Bainton's the best one-volumed uh, way of getting into Luther's life. Martin Brecht, three whopping great volumes, must be about 2,000 pages worth there. Amazingly enough, it's actually quite interesting. You'd think 2,000 pages sounds very off-putting, but Luther had quite an exciting life, and Brecht, if he doesn't write well in German, he certainly translates well into English. So Martin Brecht's three volumes give quite a, an exciting and fast-paced take on Luther in his times. Heiko Obermann's book, Luther, Man Between God and Devil, is slightly eccentric take, eccentric but brilliant take on Luther. Again, that's available in paperback if you want to buy it, and all these things are in our library. Theology in general for Luther, Paul Althaus's book, written in the early part of the 20th century, Theology of Martin Luther, is still very good. The best up-to-date one is Bernard Losey's Theology of Martin Luther both imaginative titles for books on the theology of Martin Luther, of course. Um, my edition is T&T Clark, which is a British publisher. I'm not sure who publishes it in America. I would guess probably Fortress. Uh, but if you look at Bernard Losey on Amazon, it'll tell you who publishes him in the United States. And then finally, two, volu two volumes that I want to recommend uh, on a specific aspect of Luther's theology that I want to talk about in more detail today. Uh, Walter von Leuvenick's Luther's Theology of the Cross and Gerhard Forder's On Being a Theologian of the Cross. Something I want to try to bring out from Luther today is Luther's emphasis upon weakness and suffering, which is absolutely crucial to understanding his theology. And it's something I think that is extremely important for us to get hold of, particularly in the West, where Christianity can so often be associated with uh, middle-class prosperity and success. And so often the values of the Christian church can simply emulate or mimic the values of the wider, uh, one would have to say, selfish and ruthless culture in which we live. Luther's theology of the cross is a very, very important antidote to that. It brings out uh, in stark relief uh, what theology and what the life of the theologian or the pastor should look like. So I want to talk a little bit about that later on. So those are, that's a selection of books. If you get hold of some of those and read them, 
Um, you'll get a handle on where Luther's coming from. And if you were to get, if I said you, you know, if you were to get two of those books, obviously you want to read Luther himself. So you want to get hold of one of the books of selections of Luther's writings. After that, I, I would suggest either von Lovenick or Forder's book for getting an understanding of how the cross functions in Luther's thinking. I've given you then on the second handout some extracts from uh, Luther's table talk. Luther, as anyone who spent any time reading him, he's one of the easiest theologians to read because he's got a tremendous sense of humor. And he calls it as he sees it a lot of the time. And some of the funniest bits in Luther come from his table talk. Uh, and I've given you some quotations here. I'll just read a couple of them and I'll come back to a couple of them later on. But the very first one I thought was a good one. I would not have preachers torment their heroes, uh, hearers and detain them with long and tedious preaching. For the delight of hearing vanishes therewith and the preachers hurt themselves. I think Luther captures there nicely. The preacher should stand up, say what he's got to say and sit down again. That's essentially what he's saying. If you outstay your welcome in the pulpit, then it is purely counterproductive. And then two quotations further down, not the long one, but the next short one. I learn by preaching to know that what the world, the flesh, the malice and wickedness of the devil is, all which could not be known before the gospel was revealed and preached. For up to that time, I thought there were no sins but incontinence and lechery. For Luther, preaching is a learning process in itself. It's not just about the one who has the learning, teaching the congregation. Luther himself, through wrestling with prayer, with the texts of Scripture, through struggling to bring these Scriptures to bear upon the needs of his congregation, is himself involved in a learning process. So I, want, I thought that was a, a nice quotation that caught that nicely. And then the final quotation, I will read it now because it sets the tone for things I want to say earlier, uh, later on. Um, Cursed are all preachers that in the church aim at high and hard things and neglecting the saving health of the poor and learned people, seek their own honour and praise, and therewith to please one or two ambitious persons. When I preach, I sink myself deep down. I regard neither doctors nor magistrates, of whom are here in this church above forty. But I have an eye to the multitude of young people, children and servants, of whom are more than two thousand. I preach to those, directing myself to them that have need thereof. Will not the rest hear me? The door stands open unto them. They may be gone. Uh, I see that the ambition of preachers grows and increases. This will do the utmost mischief in the church and produce great disquietness and discord. For they will needs teach high things, touching matters of state, thereby aiming at praise and honour. They will please the worldly wise and meantime neglect the simple and common multitude. An upright, godly, and true preacher should direct his preaching to the poor, to the simple sort of people, like a mother that stills her child, dawdles and plays with it, presenting it with milk from her own breast, and needing neither mamsy or muscadine for it. In such short sort should also preachers carry themselves, teaching and preaching plainly, that the simple and unlearned may conceive to comprehend and retain what they say. When they come to me, to Melanchthon, to Dr. Palmer, etc., let them show their cunning how learned they be. They shall be well put to their trumps. Bring it on, he's saying, for these clever preachers. But to sprinkle out Hebrew, Greek and Latin in their public sermons, save as merely of show, according with neither time nor place. 
a very important statement there from Luther. Luther is one of the architects of what one might call the learned ministry. He places a great emphasis in Wittenberg on learning, upon getting to grips with the biblical languages, on getting to grips with church teaching and with sophisticated theology. But that is all a propodeutic, that is all a presupposition, if you like, of then serving the ordinary people in his church. And none of that learning is to come directly into the pulpit. The pulpit is a place where the simple and the unlearned folk should be tended to. The wise and the clever, if they want to be wise and clever, Luther says, they can come and see me afterwards. I'll be as wise and clever with them as they want me to be. But the, the pulpit itself is there for speaking to the poor, to the unlearned. Um, quite a contrast. My own area is very much study of the English Puritans. And Richard Baxter, in his instructions to his congregation, says, when you preach, make sure that in every sermon you say one thing that is completely incomprehensible. Uh, he said, because if, if your people understand everything you say in your sermon, they'll think they're as good as you are, and you'll be out of a job. <laughs> Luther, however, says the exact opposite. Keep your learning for the study. Obviously, it connects very much with what he preaches, but his style of preaching is designed to communicate to everyone. And that ties in, I think, with his understanding of the cross as being that which sets the agenda. Claude, do you want to plenty of spaces down here? There's some handouts going around, Claude, but uh, grab one a bit later. So Martin Luther then, for those of you who don't know, his dates are 1483 to 1546. He is the great leader of the Protestant Reformation. Above, above all of the reformers in the 16th century, I think Luther is the most important. One can imagine, uh, obviously imagine, a Luther without a Calvin, for example, but one cannot imagine a Calvin without a Luther. Luther is the man whose thought, to a large extent, sets many of the later agendas of 16th century Protestantism. Luther himself is trained as a monk. He emerges in the second decade of the 16th century as a church leader almost by accident. He is driven to arrive at his understanding of salvation by struggles in his own soul. He's tormented by his own feelings of inadequacy before God. He's been taught by his medieval masters that if he just does his best, God will be gracious to him. And the more he works, the harder he tries, the more he feels he falls below God's standards. And it drives him to despair. He's also tormented by what he sees as the corruption of the church. As Luther comes to realize how costly and expensive grace is, that it took the blood of the only begotten Son of God to purchase grace for the church and for the believer. He comes to despair of a church that teaches its people, quite literally, that if you give somebody some money and you get a certificate, you're buying grace for your dead relatives. You can spring your dead relatives from purgatory merely by a transfer of funds, so-called sale of indulgences. Not a million miles away, I don't think, from what goes on in some of the television channels in the United States. I think there are gospel peddlers there who preach a gospel whereby if you send the money, you will get answers to your prayer. It's a kind of Protestant equivalent of indulgent selling. What it ultimately does is it cheapens the grace of God. For Luther, the grace of God is of infinite price and therefore only the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ can 
purchase grace for the believer. So then, we come now to how this pans out in Luther's understanding of preaching. And I want to, I've just divided my talk into sort of four brief sections and then we'll go and have a, a look at the sermon that I've given you as an example. And the four brief sections are the nature of salvation, the function of preaching, the style of preaching, and then what I call pluses and minuses. What I think are the, are the strong points of Luther's approach to preaching and the weaknesses of Luther's approach to preaching. It'll probably become evident as I speak and hopefully enthuse about the man that I'm generally speaking pretty pro-Luther. Therefore, I try to throw in a few minuses to show that I'm not entirely uncritical, uh, if you like. So then, the nature of salvation. Preaching is obviously connected with how Luther understands salvation. How does he understand salvation? Luther understands salvation primarily in terms of Christ. It is Christ-centered. And this leads him, well, you could say, well, all Christian understandings of salvation. The Catholic medieval understanding of salvation is Christ-centered. Well, that's true, but Luther does it in a slightly distinctive way. First of all, he focuses radically on the incarnation. For Luther, what is the good news? The good news is that God has been manifested himself in the flesh as gracious towards men and women, boys and girls. So the flesh of Christ is of crucial importance to Luther. It is only in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that God is revealed as gracious. If you look outside of the flesh of Jesus Christ for God's grace, you will not find it because it isn't there. It is only as God manifests himself in the Lord Jesus Christ that you find grace. To jump ahead a few steps, you can see how this would connect with preaching. At the end of the day, preaching has to bring Christ to the congregation. If preaching does not present the congregation with Christ, it is not preaching of grace and good news. Whatever else it is, it isn't good news. The only good news from God is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, what do you have for Luther? You have the God of judgment. If you want to face up to the God of judgment on the basis of your own merits, feel free to do so. But it will be an awesome and a terrible judgment that befalls you. You are only safe approaching God for Luther through Jesus Christ. So the whole of Luther's theology um, circles around this great emphasis upon the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the incarnation is not just, it's not just an abstract idea. It also tells us what God is like. If you want to know not just that God is gracious, but also how he is gracious then you look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does Luther see in the Lord Jesus Christ? He sees God manifest in the flesh. How does he see that panning out? He sees that panning out, as he would say, in terms of weakness and defeat. And that's a very important thing to grasp. For Luther, what do you see when you look towards the Lord Jesus Christ? You see an ordinary, humble human being if you take it through to the end of Christ's life, you see a man hanging on a cross. He's hanging on a cross. What does your human expectation of God tell you about a man who's hanging on a cross? Well, he's obviously cursed. If you're a Roman, you understand that hanging on a cross uh, involves um, the ultimate legal penalty. If you're a Jew, you understand that hanging on a cross involves 
the curse of God. Cursed is he who hangs on the tree. So from a human perspective, when you look towards the Lord Jesus Christ to see what God is like, it's very unexpected. You don't expect God to be like that. You don't expect God to manifest himself as gracious and saving by hanging on a cross. It's completely absurd for Luther. It also leads Luther to revise the whole of the Christian vocabulary. When you start talking about God's strength, God's righteousness, uh, God's faithfulness, God's love, Luther says you don't want to abstract those ideas from the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't want to come up with ideas about what you think strength and love and faithfulness should look like. You have to go to the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. What does God's strength look like on the cross? It looks a lot like weakness. What does God's righteousness look like? Well, it looks a lot like a man cursed hanging on a cross. So what Luther does by saying that God is only manifest as gracious in the Lord Jesus Christ is turn the whole of Christian vocabulary, the whole of human expectations about God on their head. He said, Jesus Christ hanging on the cross tells us, if you like, that God is the exact opposite of what we expect. If you're looking for a mighty God, look to the cross. See him there in weakness. If you're looking for a righteous God, Look to the filth and the destruction of the cross and see God's righteousness wonderfully revealed there in the brokenness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This, I think, has a twofold impact upon Luther's understanding of preaching. First of all, as I've said, it has an impact on his preaching in that preaching is, is not talking about God in the abstract. When you come to present the gospel to your people, you're not talking about God in the abstract. You're talking about the concrete person, the Lord Jesus Christ. God manifest in the flesh. God suffering and dying in the flesh. And you're pointing your people to him and saying, that is what God is like. Put aside all of your human expectations. Put aside all of your self-righteousness. At the end of the day, what are human expectations about God? They're simply manifestations of our own self-righteousness because if we're honest, what do we think God is like? Well, we think God is a bit like us at the end of the day. He's better, but he's more like me than he is like you because I just consider myself better than you at the end of the day. And I make God in that image. And what am I doing then? I'm engaging in idolatry and self-righteousness. So for Luther, the, 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 the purpose of preaching, if you like, I'm going to expand on this, is to shatter human expectations about God and therefore human expectations about themselves, and to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, his understanding of the cross has an impact upon how the preacher should understand himself. And that came out very clearly in, that second, in the third long quotation I read um, uh, from Luther. The preacher is to consider himself, if you like, as, as a sort of, in the stead of Christ with the congregation, not in any mediatorial way, but the preacher himself is to expect in his role as preacher no better than Christ expected in his role as Christ. In other words, suffering, weakness, and brokenness are to be part and parcel of the preacher's experience. Preaching is a privilege, but it is a privilege that brings in its wake scorn, and contempt. 
Luther has a very interesting take on the so-called theodicy problem, this idea of you know, why do bad things happen to good people. Luther's take on it is twofold. Well, first of all, he would deny that there are any good people other than the Lord Jesus Christ around. And secondly, he would look to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, well, if we want to see what happens to good people, let's look at the Lord Jesus Christ and see what happened to him. He was spat upon. He was scourged. He was despised. He died a terrible death on the cross. The obvious question then is to you as a preacher or to you as an ordinary believer, why do you expect God to deal with you in any better way than he dealt with his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ? So the theology of the cross has both an impact on the content of preaching and, I think, on the preacher's own understanding of their own role. And one can extrapolate from that and therefore say, on the understanding of every individual Christian's role. Because Christ is, if you like, not just the pattern for the preacher, he's also the pattern for every Christian. Luther will say the great lesson of Christ's life is that Christ, that God achieves what he wants in our lives by doing the exact opposite of what we desire and expect. That's what he does in Christ's life, and that's what he does in the life of every individual believer. So the preacher's lot is not a happy one from that perspective. should not be expected to be one. So then the fake focus on the incarnation and the theology of the cross. How does this... Uh, oh, the, the third point about preaching, of course, is that for Luther, it touches directly on the method as well. Preaching seems a remarkably pathetic and weak way to go about spreading the word over the whole of the face of the earth. Uh, military conquest would appear to be a much more effective way of doing it. And yet, the very method of spreading the word of Jesus Christ mimics the weakness of Jesus Christ himself. It is because preaching the mere declaration of God's message in the Lord Jesus Christ is so weak and pitiful that is its greatest strength. As the fragility of humanity was the means by which God brought humanity to salvation, so the fragility of preaching fulfills that same function now as it points men and women, boys and girls, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Any questions so far? I'll just take a, it's a natural break. Uh, any questions on that, a clarification? Yeah. Christ in the Old Testament, grace in the Old Testament. Can you comment on that? Because Luther, as you said, would say it's only in Christ the question is uh, Christ and grace in the Old Testament. Uh, Luther would see the Old Testament uh, as, as being gracious in that it points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, one of the things that he does in terms of preaching, and this really brings, I suppose, on to my next point, is uh, Luther then sees, how does he see salvation? He sees salvation as Christ-centered. He sees individuals as being saved by virtue of being in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you come to be in union with the Lord Jesus Christ? You come to be in union with the Lord Jesus Christ by trusting in God's promise. Christ is not just a historical fact. He's also the promise of God. And that ties in with the question then about the Old Testament. The Old Testament contains the promise of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, there is the capacity, if you like, of being united with Christ prospectively in the Old Testament as you have the capacity of being united with Christ retrospectively after the New Testament. So how does Luther then see Scripture? I've already 
Luther sees there are basically two ways to relate to God. You can relate to God on your own terms or you can relate to God on God's terms. You can make God in your own image or you can accept that you are made in the image of God and that God determines what God is like. Luther sums this up in two terms. He says you can either read the Bible as law or you can read it as gospel. The law says do this. The law is built upon this idea that God is like us. I want you to like me. I do something nice to you. You, you want me to like you. You do something nice to me. We assume that by doing somebody a favour, that earns their favour, if you like. What is that doing, of course? That is building God according to human expectations. For Luther, the cross stands as a judgment of that. God is not like we imagine him to be. What does the cross tell us? The cross tells us, among other things, that God loves the unlovely precisely in their unloveliness. He loves and does favours precisely for those who do not love him and do him favours. So you can relate to God in terms of law. You can read the Bible as saying, do this. The trouble is, sin holds you in its grip. Sin is moral death. And the Bible tells you do this and you can never do it. You can never do it because you're fallen in Adam. And the more the Bible screams at you and the more you read it as do this and God will favor you, the more you're inclined to despair. But you can read the Bible that way if you show choose. You could try to meet God as a sinful human being on your own terms. Alternatively, you can read the Bible as gospel. You can read it as New Testament. You can read it as involving the promise of God. The promise of God is that God has done it for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And by grasping that promise through faith, you are united to him and God deals with you as he dealt with Christ. Vindicates him, declares him righteous, raises him from the dead. So for Luther then, Scripture divides rather simply into two. Old Testament, New Testament, law and gospel, command and promise. When I say Old Testament, New Testament, Luther does use that division to refer to the canonical division. But he can also use it theologically to refer to the mode in which the Bible is read or preached. Old Testament is reading or preaching the Bible as command, do this. New Testament is reading the Bible as promise, believe this, trust in God. You can read the Old Testament as New Testament. And you can read the New Testament as Old Testament in those terms. The question is whether you're approaching God on your terms or whether you're approaching God on God's terms. That, of course, again feeds into preaching. What is the preacher doing? Well, for Luther, the preacher does two things. The preacher is there. He's there to tear down and he is there to build up. For Luther, every single human being Every single human being is at war with themselves. The old man and the new man are at war. In a congregation of believers, Luther has preaching should be twofold. On the one hand, you've got to be constantly pointing people back to the absolute standards of righteousness of God. You've got to be driving them to despair in one sense. You've got to be using the Bible to slay them, to kill them. It's not enough to be cleaned of sin, Luther would say. You have to die to sin. And that is a daily activity. For Luther, baptism is the whole of the Christian life. Every second of the Christian's life is a dying and a rising. And that is to be aided and abetted by the preacher, 
who is to constantly be bringing to bear on his people the absolute demands of God's law. Do this. Be pure. Be righteous. His people haven't got a hope of doing that. So what does it do? It drives them to despair. And then as people are despairing, what do you do? You preach the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ to them. And the sermon I've given you later is a great example of how the first half of the sermon, Luther's hammering the law. And in the second half of the sermon, he lifts his uh, congregation's eyes from themselves and points them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in this, this context that the whole of the Christian life is to be understood. Suffering, uh, contradiction, how are these things to be computed? Well, they're to be understood as flowing from God's will because it's important that God is constantly killing you morally, constantly bringing you back from dependence upon yourself to dependence upon him. So as the law is preached and the gospel is preached by the preacher, so the law and gospel are preached by human experience as well. Sufferings drive you to despair in yourself and to despair in other people and to look once again to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the preacher then is to focus on law and gospel. And every text that you find in Scripture, Luther would say, you are to find the law there and you're to preach it as law. And then you're to find Christ there and you're to preach Christ. And when you stand up in front of your people on a Sunday, you are not to miss out one or the other. Both are necessary. You have to cause people to despair of themselves because that is part and parcel then of them trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, that is a brief outline of the kind of content of preaching with Luther. Um, just on the Christological thing, of course, it ties in with his understanding of Scripture. There are certain books in Scripture that Luther ejects from the canon because he can't find Christ there. Most famously, of course, the book of James. Um, I think Luther's table talk comment on the book of James was, if I had my choice, I would rip little Jimmy from the Bible and throw him on the fire because he couldn't find Christ in the book of James. I think he was wrong. Later, Lutheranism thinks he was wrong. But that's how radically he took this emphasis upon Christ. And the passage in James where James says, uh, I've quoted this to some of you before, where James says, not many of you should aspire to be teachers. In Luther's German Bible, he has a marginal comment saying, oh, James, if only you had taken your own advice. Uh, so, but Luther can say that and get away with it, I suspect. Uh, well, anybody in a, a New Testament class at Westminster would probably find themselves uh, having to see uh, Mr. Carson about that uh, at a later stage. So... <laughs> So then, that is a broad outline of the, of the content and, uh, of preaching, uh, just the function of preaching. We witness in the 16th century a great shift from an aesthetic, what I call an aesthetic Christianity, a Christianity based upon sight and taste, if you like, to a verbal Christianity. You see this most dramatically in the change in architecture in European churches. If you look at a medieval cathedral, you go into a medieval cathedral, your eyes are immediately drawn to the far end. Why is that? Because the architect builds the church to focus your eyes on the most important thing that happens in that church. The most important thing that happens in that church is the mass. That's the most important thing. If you go into a Protestant cathedral like St. Giles in Edinburgh, your eye is drawn to the centre. Why is it drawn to the centre? Because that's where the pulpit is. The most important thing that happens in a Protestant church is the pulpit. Now, there's a huge cultural shift goes on in Europe at this time, the invention of the printing press, rising literacy rates. All of these things point towards 
the increasing importance of words in the way society operates. But I want to suggest as well that any Christian theology that takes law and promise seriously has to take words seriously as well. It's very difficult to promise in a way that isn't verbal or the precise equivalent of a verbal communication. If you're blind or if you're deaf, sign language or braille will function the same as uh, spoken words or written words, but they're words. So preaching, I would suggest, is singularly important for Luther and the Reformation, not just because Europe is moving to a culture where books and writing are important, but it's a theological significance as well. And that is significant for today because you know that a lot of the pressure today is in evangelical churches in particular is to shift away from the centrality of preaching because it's a weak and ineffective means of communication and we live in a society that responds to pictures more than it responds to words. I want to suggest that the first of those applies in the 16th century. Luther's well aware of the weakness of preaching as a medium. Tying it in with his theology of the cross, that's what makes it so glorious because the weakness of the medium allows the glory and the power of the God to shine through it in a cross-like way. Um, the second, what was my second? Uh, pictures. Um, I forgot what I was going to say as my second criticism of it there. Uh, I can't remember. No, nope, I can't remember. It's completely gone. I hope it wasn't too profound because you'd have been uh, <laughs> cheated out of some, some great insight at that point. Maybe it'll come back to me later on. The second thing, second thing about the function of preaching, just to... Going back to the biblical text itself, Luther comes out of a background where in the Middle Ages, every text of the Bible was divided up into four senses. If you're a preacher, you looked for the literal sense, which... Nine times out of ten corresponded to what the words actually seemed to say. Uh, you would look for the moral sense, how it applies to daily life. You would look for the um, tropological sense, how it points to Christ. And you would look for what is called the anagogical sense. Don't worry about the terminology. The anagogical sense, which is how it points to the end of time. So sometimes it's a great way of dividing up the biblical text. It means you get a very practical sermon out of every individual text. Luther really shrinks that down to two. Uh, the law interpretation and the gospel or Christ interpretation. And the only thing I want to say in this point is that that makes preaching for Luther an existential thing. It is not enough for Luther just to retell the story. You've got to bring out the theological significance of any passage you get hold of. It goes back to what I've said about relating it to Christ. Luther says, there is no difference between myself and the Pope in terms of what we believe. We believe that Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. We believe he lived in Israel, uh, in Palestine for 30, 33 years. We believe he died on the cross. We believe he rose from the dead. There is no difference between what I believe and what the Pope believes. The difference, he says, is that I believe all this happened for me. In other words, the difference lies in the way Luther and the Pope believed the stories. And that impacts, of course, on preaching. Preaching is not to be a disinterested recounting of the biblical story. For Luther, it is to be theological and confrontational. You have to bring out the theological significance of God manifest in the flesh, 
when you preach on the cross, you don't just preach that this man, Jesus Christ, died on the cross and rose again from the dead. You talk about what that means for the being of God, what it means for our understanding of God, and you urge it on the hearers as being significant for them. This is their creator. They are involved in this story, and therefore you impress upon people the urgency of the message. So then that's broadly speaking sort of the, the function and the, and, the, and the theological urgency of preaching. Uh, third, the style. Luther, like all reformers, argues for simplicity of style. Calvin, as far as I'm aware, in all of the sermons of Calvin I have read, he never once cites Greek or Hebrew. Never. And I have to say, it always turns my stomach when a minister cites Greek or Hebrew in their sermon. Because it is, wittingly or unwittingly, it is a way of setting up a barrier between themselves and the people. It is a reinstatement of priesthood, effectively. It is a parading of learning. Yes, ministers should be learned, but for Luther, there was to be no parading of learning in the pulpit. Uh, the quotation, go back to Luther's table talk, or another quotation on this that we can read now. I would not have preachers in their sermons use Hebrew, Greek, or foreign languages. For in the church we ought to speak as we used to do at home, the plain mother tongue, which everyone is acquainted with. It may be allowed in courtiers, lawyers, advocates, etc., to use quaint and curious words. Dr. Staupitz, this is one of the men who had the greatest influence on Luther before he became a Protestant, one of the great gems of the late medieval church. Dr. Staupitz is a very learned man, yet he is a very irksome preacher. And the people had rather hear a plain brother preach that delivers his words simply to their understanding than he. In churches, no praising or extolling should be sought after. St. Paul never used such high and stately words as Demosthenes and Cicero did, but he spake properly and plainly, words which signified and showed high and stately manners, and he did well. So, Luther then, his emphasis on the simplicity of preaching. The style is not to be fancy. The pulpit is not to be used as a basis for an elaborate display of how clever you are. And again, it ties back to his understanding of Christ and the cross. How does Christ exhibit his glory and his might and his kingship? He exhibits it by serving others, by lowering himself to the level of humanity and serving others. And Christians in general, and preachers in particular, are to do precisely the same. They are to bring themselves low, low down to the level of their people and to serve their people. Their learning is to be used not as an excuse for lording it over those who have not had the privilege of such learning. Their learning is to be used as an opportunity for better serving their people. For that is precisely how Christ used his glory. It is precisely, if you like, what God is like because Christ manifest in the flesh shows us what God is like. Briefly then, before I open up for questions, pluses and minuses. The minus first. I think the, mi the, the minus, and it's a temptation that is not just there in Luther's theology, I think it's also there in redemptive historical preaching as well. Uh, there can be a minus in the attempt, as soon as you get hold of a text, to, uh, it's what one of my uh, former colleagues rather sort of um, uh, rudely called the where's Waldo approach to preaching. 
You get hold of the text, you find Christ, and then you preach on Christ, you don't preach on the text. And there is a tendency, I think, in Luther sometimes for that to occur. The text is incidental. The real matter is Christ. So if I was to pull out one major criticism of Luther's style of preaching, it's that sometimes the path from the text to Christ is rather shorter than one suspects it really is. That is not to say that Luther isn't fundamentally correct in wanting to relate every text to Christ. But it is to say that sometimes he rather jumps across that gap in a somewhat simplistic manner and preaches about Christ. It's not just Luther. I think anybody who wants a Christocentric, a Christ-centered approach to the biblical text is likely to be vulnerable to that kind of temptation. Um, and of course it ends up with, it just means that the same sermon gets preached week after week and it ends up as being rather boring and tedious. So sometimes his attention to the text and context is not as great as it should be. The great strength of Luther's preaching, however, I think is that it sets wonderfully accurate horizons of expectation for Christian believers. One of the things that uh, health, wealth and prosperity preaching does not do and that is it does not present a biblical view of what life is going to be like. By focusing on the cross, by focusing on the cross, Luther sets horizons of expectation that place suffering and contradiction at the heart of the Christian life. And my own reading of the New Testament and of Paul's epistles is that that is absolutely bang on correct. Absolutely correct. Um, and it's... I think it's particularly important for those in the West to hear this because these are times of relative ease for the church in the West, uh, material prosperity. Many of us despise health, wealth and happiness preaching when we see it on televangelists, but we in practice live as if it's true. And I think that is a very dangerous thing. And one of the antidotes to that is surely careful preaching on the theology of the cross as you find in 1 and 2 Corinthians, for example. So that would be, if I had to pull out one weakness, it's the simplistic nature sometimes of the exegesis. If I had to pull out one big plus over against much of the preaching that goes on today, that cross-centered nature of it sets what I think are accurate and appropriate horizons of expectation for the Christian church. Um, I was pretty, I have to say, I was pretty shocked last night when I saw this TV report, There's a, there was a, a gay person beaten to death some years ago in a, in a park and a, a Christian group wanted to erect a monument saying so-and-so entered hell at this point on such a day, on the spot where this lad died. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not at all sympathetic towards the gay movement, but I did wonder how that tied in with Luther's theology of the cross and as I see it expressed in the Apostle Paul, the use of might to bully, cajole and to frighten others seems an absolute contradiction of the Christian message. And the, the presentation of the gospel being made there did not seem to me to be the kind of gospel that I see reflected, particularly in uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians or in any of the accounts of Christ's crucifixion. So then, brief summary. Luther on preaching. It's Christ-centered. It's very straightforward. You preach the law, then you preach the gospel. Uh, preaching is absolutely central, and it's not just central for cultural reasons, it's central for theological reasons. I remember the point I was going to make now about pictures. I do not think that if you try to project the same message by pictures and by preaching, you are not projecting the same message in two different forms. You are projecting two subtly different messages. 
I think that the media, the media that appeals to the ear and the media that appeals to the eye do two basically different things. The example I always use of this is the Nixon-Kennedy uh, debate in 1960, years before my time, um, I'm glad to say. <laughs> well, I gather those who listened on the radio thought Nixon had won. Those who watched on the television thought Kennedy had won. It was not, the, they weren't listening to the same debate, if you like. The experience, the message that came from that single event was diametrically opposed in terms of the visual and the oral. So the point I was going to make about pictures was the medium is not so separable from the message that you can simply pour the message into any medium you choose, if I can put it that way. And I think preaching... The, I'm not sure, it just came off the top of my head. <laughs> my best thoughts are ones that I just think up on the remote. The medium is not so inseparable from the message that you can simply pour the message into any medium you so choose. 